Hello and welcome to History Talk from Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. This is your host, Patrick Patyandi at Ohio State University. And I'm your other host, Leticia Wiggins. The September 11th attacks on New York's World Trade Center towers and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. put Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and Afghanistan on the map for many in the United States. Since 2001, U.S. and NATO forces have been in Afghanistan, first invading to throw the Taliban from power and then supporting the government and Kabul with aggressive state-building projects. The American occupation has resulted in millions upon millions of dollars invested and gone to line the pockets of local leaders and thousands of American, NATO, and Afghan lives lost. Yet, for this blood and treasure, Afghanistan's future seems grim and little better off than when the Western militaries arrived. As NATO officially ended its combat operations in late December 2014, although clearly American military activity will go on much, much longer, the country remains fractured by ethnic and geographic fissures, with local warlords controlling their own fiefdoms and government in Kabul only nominally in control. Last year's presidential elections were fractious and deeply contested. Corruption and an uncompromising economy remain, as does widespread poppy cultivation in the opium trade. And the Taliban, that American forces went in to banish, remain a force to be reckoned with and have made deep headway in neighboring Pakistan as well. Today on History Talk, we examine Afghanistan's complex history. Has it always been this way in Afghanistan? What does the past of these peoples and this country tell us about prospects for the future? Joining us today are three guests knowledgeable in the intricacies of Afghanistan's history to put this area back into the broader historical and global conversation. Uh, I'm Alam Payend. I am the director of the Middle East Studies Center at The Ohio State University. By training, I'm a political scientist and I'm a native of Afghanistan. I was a graduate student finishing my PhD and the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. My name is Scott Levi. I'm a history professor at The Ohio State University, and uh, I'm a specialist in the early modern history of Central Asia. Uh, I've visited Afghanistan and lived for extended periods in Pakistan and Uzbekistan. I'm Robert Cruz. I teach in the history department at Stanford University, where I'm also the director of the um, Sohei bin Sarah Basi program in Islamic studies. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And we'd just like to begin with some uh, deep background here, um, although briefly. So, Scott Levi, if you could tell us how Afghanistan was created in the first place. So in terms of the, the political boundaries, we really um, only have to go back to the late 19th century. But the, the concept of Afghanistan as a political entity really um, in multiple types of conceptualizations can be taken back to antiquity. Uh, really, in terms of looking at it as a modern nation state, uh, I think it's most common for scholars to look back to the early modern period when Afghanistan was uh, a collection of cities uh, and the surrounding agricultural zones, uh, pastoral zones. So looking at like Herat in the northwest, Balkh and Mazar Sharif in the north, Kabul in the east, and Kandahar really in uh, kind of the south central, southeast part of the country. Um, these were areas that were on the frontier between the Mughal Empire centered in India, the Safavid Empire in Iran, and the Uzbek Khanates up to the north. It was a frontier zone. Um, and I think, you know, looking at the ways that Afghans themselves interacted with these imperial powers, uh, you know, it, it, it depended on um, the political vicissitudes at the time. Uh, the Afghans acted in their own self-interest. So occasionally they would align various groups of Afga Afghans, you would say, would align with the Mughals. Uh, and then if there was a motivation to shift alliances, shift their allegiances, toward the Safavids, for example, or the Uzbeks, uh, than they would. So there are early modern roots to the concept of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The 
uh, as I said, the political boundaries are enforced on Afghanistan from outside. Uh, so in 1893, we see the establishment of the Durand Line, which becomes the political boundary between British India and this new state of Afghanistan. Three years later, uh, in 1896, the Russians, uh, the Russian Empire uh, established their own political boundaries with the state. So that's really, I mean, in terms of a cartographic reality. That's where we see the establishment of our conceptualization of the, the Afghan state. Well, Afghan historians usually say that the history of Afghanistan was dictated by its geographical location. Afghanistan is considered to be located on the crossroads of migration, conquest, and uh, in trade. If it was the Persians, the Achaemenian Persians, they wanted to go to the prized India, they will have to pass through Afghanistan. Mm. If it was Alexander the Great going to India, has to pass through Afghanistan. And if it was Chinggis Khan or Timurlan and others, the Baburs and the Mughals of India, so they all passed through Afghanistan. So that's one reason why Afghanistan is so, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. And as Professor Scatliwai is right, that the modern name of Afghanistan, it used to be Khurasan uh, in the history during the time of the Ghaznavids and even up to the time of the Ghurids and Ludis. This Afghanistan is a, is a term that which was used in 1747 after Ahmad Shah Abdali. And Afghanistan was much bigger than what it is today. Uh, it was not a landlocked country. It was in 1893 that the British separated a section from Afghanistan, which is now Northwest Frontier in Balochistan. So made Afghanistan a land, landlocked country since then, uh, since uh, 1893. So we have this now historic background, and we're curious to move it along to the 20th century. And moving this conversation to the present, how has it been governed across the 20th century? Our elders would tell us in Afghanistan, when we were growing, that Afghanistan, for the first time, for 40 years, they did not have occupations by outsiders or civil, civil wars inside Afghanistan. It was the time after Zahir Khan came to Afghanistan. But quickly, then the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan destroyed everything which existed. So since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Afghanistan has seen 10 years of the Soviet occupation, then about uh, other 10 years of civil war in Afghanistan, probably nine years. Then came the United States uh, involvement in, the, in Afghanistan for the past 15 years almost. So if you take the history of 36 years of Afghanistan, so 10 years of the Soviet occupation, and again, 15 years of the United States involvement, again, it is a occupation as far as the Afghans are concerned. Mm. So the situation now is very complicated uh, the neighboring countries have become stronger and stronger, their influence in Afghanistan, especially the two neighbors, Iran and Pakistan, and also the United States. The Soviet Union is still an active power in the region, even though they have lost Central Asian republics. They are independent countries, but, but the cloud is there. Mm. India is a major power in the region, are very much interested in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan has become, now there is a, it used to be the frontline country during the Cold War in the 20th century. After the end of the Cold War from 1990 when the Soviet Union collapsed, now these other things have been created in Afghanistan, which is the Soviet invasion and the Iranian revolution. These two incidences have really uh, complicated the situation in Afghanistan. A lot of historians like to think about golden ages for, for nation states mm -hmm. um, in, in their history. And we're wondering if there was a golden age for Afghanistan to kind of complicate the history here a little bit of what maybe our, our average listener might think about Afghanistan. And so if, if there was one, when was it and, and, and when? I'm going to say the 11th century Gazdavid period. <laughs> <laughs> but very but early you always on. say that. That's right. You always say that. I'm tired of hearing you say that. Everyone knows what you believe. <laughs> it's a relative term. 
Afghanistan right, right. never had peace that other countries are enjoying uh, because of its location and the politics of that the 20th geographic century. Location. Yes, the geographic location and being a frontline country during the Cold War. And also before the Cold War, it was a frontline country during the great game between the British India and the Tsarist Russia. So mm. if you combine all these, then when we come, there was a short period from 1963 to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan are the first communist coup in Afghanistan. So there was a period that Afghanistan had a new constitution, and that new constitution was relatively speaking liberal. The co-education, I'm one of the products of the co-education in Afghanistan. So for the first time, that uh, the girls and boys were in the same, so universities became co-education. Even high schools later became co And women were asked voluntarily to remove their burqas or hijab or chadris in Afghanistan, they call those. So that was a period very peaceful uh, until uh, and then the new constitution, parties were allowed to participate. This is when the, this communist uh, Afghan socialist party of People's Democratic Party and other Islamist parties also sprang in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It was a short-lived uh, kind of openness in Afghanistan, and freedom of press was there. There were uh, ten, eleven uh, newspapers were published in Afghanistan. We did not have a television at that time, but there were radio stations. So this this this, this period was considered by Afghans, relatively speaking, a a maybe a mini small golden age. Let me say, add to that, that in, in, in all seriousness, that um, uh, historians look back at much of the 20th century as a period of progress in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Uh, we have today, uh, in popular understandings of Afghan history, the idea that this is a place that's lost in time, um, that uh, uh, Afghanistan is this medieval society that uh, is anchored by Afghan tribalism, whatever that may be. Uh, but as historians dig deeper, we find that even... Uh, uh, from the 1920s forward, there are a number of steps, uh, including um, uh, educational infrastructures, uh, technology, the uh, construction of factories, things that are really modernizing Afghanistan in the ways that we understand, you know, a modern society of the of the 20th century. Uh, so it has much more in common with other uh, nation states in the region at that point. Um, looking forward, then we get the um, uh, 1963 liberalization uh, movement as well. So much of the 20th century is we would identify as a period of progress. Now, is this a, a golden age? Uh, is uh, as, as Alain Payen says, um, uh, I think that's a subjective question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you know what constitutes a golden age. Certainly, people in the 1920s, 1930s were unhappy with the ways that uh, Afghanistan was progressing, or some were very happy. Uh, and and you could say the same about the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, but uh, by and large, the the nation state itself. Uh, uh, of Afghanistan was uh, integrated in regional developments, global developments. Uh, this is a topic that Bob Cruz is talking about in a book that he's recently finished, and maybe he'll be able to talk a little bit more about it for us. Those are all excellent points. I think that, um, I mean, I would defer to, to Afghans who've lived in different historical moments to determine what means for them. I think in looking at some of the new memoir literature that has come out, um, yeah, you know, essentially, people often associate, as we would, um, or others would, you know, their, their youth, um, time at university with their, the golden era of their own lives. Um, so, and, and going back to the, the moment that um, the professor mentioned earlier, that the, the period of the 60s and 70s for, for many urbanite Kabulis, um, this was a really, you know, important moment that they still remember when there were opportunities for education, when there was the coeducational possibility, 
And when there was a, a kind of political excitement about um, mm-hmm. exploring alternatives to the then reigning monarchical politics, so this is when people begin to s- discover socialism. They begin to explore certain kinds of European, what well, they have to be like uh, parliamentary uh, regimes, potentially, begin to explore political parties, begin to imagine um, an Afghanistan that might achieve a different kind of social equality when writers begin to uh, turn to rural themes and talking about uh, peasant inequality, mm. when they begin to um, thematize the problem of the factory worker and, and of city life. All these things are, are new to Afghan literature in the 60s and 70s, but are very much inspired by global literary currents. But I would also add that um, you know, there is a, another part of Afghan society, which remains important today, which looks back nostalgically on the 1980s from two different perspectives. One is, uh, is that of the, the communist regime itself, you know, those who were close to the rule of Dr. Najibullah, who was the, the last People's Democratic Party uh, leader, who then renamed the party. But um, he was the, roughly the contemporary to Mikhail Gorbachev. And for people at this moment in Kabul especially, they saw this as a, um, a moment of great excitement in which Afghans were realizing socialism, right? And of course, it was being challenged by both Afghan fighters, the Mujahideen, and foreign powers, including the United States. But uh, for some, living in the diaspora, living in immigration, this is still, they still see some hope in that moment. They highlight things like um, you know, the aspiration toward gender equality, toward mass literacy, things which the regime pursued with violence, but which in retrospect now looks like goals which are some ways analogous to what the Americans and other international actors have pursued in Afghanistan since then. So there's an interesting complication there in, in what, you know, I think some of them respond to contemporary events saying this is what we tried to achieve in the 1980s and you stood against us. Um, from a very different political point of view, there are those um, among Mujahideen circles who look back to the period of, of the jihad in the 1980s as one of a kind of political purity, a moment when they sacrifice themselves, when Afghans sacrifice themselves um, for the nation and for, and for Islam to repel the Soviet rule and to dismantle this socialist regime. And so that, it, it's such an tension, you know, what, what is the, the golden age in the memory of different groups? I mean, these are, these are, it's part of, in a way, the political circle today. What side were you on? Did you leave? Did you stay? Did you mm-hmm. fight? Did you not? And uh, unfortunately, the Mujahideen who were so important in the 1980s have retained a stranglehold on key sectors of Afghan politics. And um, they make claims to political authority based on that political legacy of the 1980s. So this is very much a, a live issue in Afghan politics. And tying these politics then to the tribal and ethnic divisions, might Afghanistan still exist as a nation state in the conventional sense and should it, given these tribal and ethnic divisions? It existed. Mm-hmm. These this tribal and ethnic divisions are not a new thing. The neighboring country, Iran, they have a history of imperial central government. Afghanistan never created that kind of government in Afghanistan. For a short period of time, they did, under the Ghaznavids and under the Ghurids. And I would say from 1747, there were three British invasions, and then there was one Soviet invasion. There were some other small invasions, too. So Afghanistan survived with all those different ethnic... So there is... In Afghanistan, we have Uzbeks, we have Turkmans, we have Tajiks. But it's amazing that anyone that who have studied Afghanistan, that there is very little secessionist movement among the Uzbeks of Afghanistan, that they want to secede from Afghanistan and join Uzbekistan. There are very little 
secessionist movements among the Tajiks that, well, we do not want to be Afghanistan, be in Afghan. Are the Pashtuns the same way across the border in Pakistan? So as of yet, we do not have the secessionist movement. And when you said to the Uzbek and Turkoman and Tajik, by the way, this current situation in Afghanistan, uh, the the president of Afghanistan elected uh, is Ashraf Ghani. He's a Pashtun. He comes from the Pashtun ethnic mm-hmm. groups. But his first wife's president is an Uzbek. So Afghanistan always had, even in the time of Amir Amanullah Khan, he was a Pashtun king. But he went, when he went to Russia to visit Lenin and his Naibu Sultana or his person that who would be a monarch in his absence and do the acting monarch, he was in Hazara at that time. Few historians have really studied. So Afghanistan had this kind of, they would say that there are all Afghans are ruled by the Khans, by the tribal chiefs. Zahir Khan is one Khan in Kabul, so that so that that was Zahir Khan was ruling Afghanistan by that sort of traditions, and those traditions were all mixed up when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. So the Soviet Union, for the ten years of occupation, they destroyed the old mechanism which existed, whether it's for dispute resolution or the tribal affairs, and did not create a new thing. And when they left in haste, so then Afghanistan went to the civil war, and the civil war barely was not ended. Then happened September the 11th, and Americans went there. So we are talking about this kind of history of Afghanistan. So, the, so we, we should not judge Afghanistan by the past mm-hmm. 36 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should go a little bit beyond uh, before that. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, difficult to, to think of an analogy, really. Uh, if we were trying to, um, somebody were to try and advance an argument that Afghanistan should actually be broken apart and fragmented into multiple different nation states. Uh, but maybe the Balkans is um, uh, an analogy that, 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 that might work, which is to say, you know, if you were to take each nation state and break it apart into its ethnic, uh, or in you know, this case, if you want to use the word tribal uh, components, how many different nation states would we ultimately end up with? Uh, it's just it's it's not a feasible project. Many of the differences that that appear so prominent in Afghan politics today, that in fact they're they're not ancient. Um, they're not divisions of, of great historical import in every case. Um, some of them are, are quite new, and I think it's worth reflecting on the ways in which uh, the Americans and and other partners since two thousand one have um, enhanced the meaning of certain differences um, in recruiting for employment at bases and, re- and recruiting for NGOs and other international institutions, and then very crucially in forming a new Afghan national army where uh, Tajiks are very much overrepresented in the officer corps. So we think historically about schools and armies being really central to nation formation. Um, those institutions, of course, have suffered under conditions of civil war. I mean, they've they've collapsed under these political pressures, beginning already in the 19, um, late 70s and, and early 80s. But now, in attempting to reconstruct them, I think uh, international actors have put them back together in a way which has, I think, heightened some of their ethnic uh, cleavages. Um, the, the army is especially important for this. I mean, to what extent can an Afghan state construct um, national institutions through this military, when its officer corps is so unrepresentative, for example. I think that another difficulty is that in, in cultivating schooling, which has been an important contribution there too, because it has been so tainted by the international presence and by international agency, that I think that's raised skepticism about um, the legitimacy of those schools in the eyes of some communities. So there are things which I think are actually quite modern and quite new. Uh, they're part, there's something that Americans, too, have, have contributed to the formation of. 
And and so we've kind of covered a very kind of long history here of Afghanistan, even bringing in the the 11th century um, at one point. Um, and so, Thank but you. this brings us up to uh, uh, what was the impact of the Taliban years on Afghanistan? In what ways was this era an aberration of earlier patterns? And how did the Taliban come to have the support that it did? Um, you know, and and then moving forward, even maybe what what's the role of the Taliban in Afghanistan today? In the history of Afghanistan, when you look at uh, the past centuries, I'm not talking about 10, 11, 12, 13 mm -hmm. centuries. Afghanistan was never ruled by a group of clergy or priests. Uh, this is the history of Afghanistan. It's always by ethnic and tribal leaders and dynasties and military men and that sort of, mostly lay people. This a Islamist groups taking power, it's a totally new creation in the history of Afghanistan. It happened after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Mm. When the Soviet Union invaded, I was just reading today Zbigniew Brzezinski and President Carter and President Reagan. They would invite these Mujahideen, and I have their pictures too. What happened? Brzezinski is speaking to these Mujahideen at that time. They're not Mujahideen. They're not even called Mujahideen at that time. They're refugees. They went to the refugee camps, and he was looking at the guns, and he said that God is on your side. We Americans are going to help you. This was the doctrine at that time of Brzezinski that we should destabilize And they said that this is a trap to the Soviet Union. Now we can take the revenge from the Soviet Union, what Americans suffered in Vietnam. So these, these are all... So what happened? Americans and Arab countries and Europeans, they wanted to support a group in Afghanistan. There was very little stomach for that kind of... to resist the Soviet invasion. And there were these groups of Mujahideen, so to, who happened later. These were all mostly refugee people, the refugee leaders and others. So finally they created a group and these Mujahideen were supported by Americans, by Europeans, by the Arab nations because most of these oil-rich Arab countries were nervous too. So this is totally a creation after the Soviet Union. And when the Mujahideen finally failed, and then I was in Pakistan in 1994 when Pakistan supported uh, the, the Taliban to come to Afghanistan because that they wanted to cross that oil from Turkmenistan. To, then they, at, at that time, Taliban were very anti-Iran. So Americans and Pakistanis, and they all, and inside Afghanistan too. So Taliban and Mujahideen were supported by outside people, not by insider Afghans. They wanted to resist against the Soviet Union. Afghans did not like the Soviet Union. Afghans did not, they do not like Americans either. So they do not like foreigners, period. That's the history of Afghanistan. But they did not want these Taliban or Mujahideen to come to power. But somehow they came mostly with the foreign interests, foreign interests, foreign weapons. So these are the new developments. Let me give you another example. This Arab-Israeli issue is not even an issue in Afghanistan. It's so distant. It's the Arab-Israeli issues. So the Palestinian problem is not a problem. All these Mujahideen now, when they are, some of them are commanders are declaring their sort of allegiance with this ISIL, or I, these are just a very small group of them. They do not want outsiders to interfere in the affairs of the Afghans. If there would not have been the Pakistani support for the Mujahideen or the American support for the Mujahideen, they could not survive. And the same is true for Taliban. Until this date, the Pakistani ISI is very much supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan. And they're supporting anti-Indian groups like al-Nasra and those groups in Pakistan too, uh, against India. So Pakistan has become a country which is detrimental to India and Afghanistan both. So this is the history. There is tremendous literature on this provided by scholars. Yeah, let me reiterate that um, uh, the Taliban movement was born in the refugee camps in Pakistan. 
Uh, these were refuge- refugees who were fleeing war during the, the period of um, Soviet occupation. Uh, so it's, a, it's a, um, a phenomenon that exists in a particular period of time, in a particular historical context. Uh, so this is uh, – it's a unique phenomenon in the history of the region. Uh, it's not something that if we look back 50 years or 100 years earlier, we could find. I would say to maybe to address the, the tail end of your question, I think that um, you know what, what has struck most observers is that they didn't disappear after 2001. They weren't militarily defeated. Yes, their leaders did pass into to Pakistan, um, but not all of them. Um, and then those who left came back in many cases. And and within three years of um, 2001, the Taliban were clearly back on the political scene. And so that, that's a, a bit of a puzzle because you know, the Taliban were known, of course, for their human rights abuses in Kabul, which they took in, in the fall of 1996, and, of course, their, their violence toward women. And they're backing for forms of Islam and of Islamic law, which most Afghans rejected. And yet they remain very much part of the Afghan political scene. Um, it's difficult to gauge their support. The support has certain ethnic limits, it seems. Um, but what the Taliban have become, and they are a dynamic force that continues to evolve, they have become a very strong nationalist um, voice in Afghan politics. I think that part of their appeal for some Afghans is that they have remained steadfast in opposing the American-backed presidents, Karzai now, Ghani. They have been steadfast in opposing American occupation, whereas some Afghan, Afghan political uh, figures have been sometimes equivocal, sometimes um, cautious in their criticism. The Taliban have been unrelenting. I think that has gained them some support, and especially because the, the Taliban have um, adapted their rhetoric to new conditions. They have, in a sense, um, acknowledged, not explicitly, but implicitly, that they failed at governance when they ruled from 1996 to 2001. And they have since projected this image of, of being competent administrators. They've adopted this very technocratic language in the pronouncements they make. They have revisited their policy toward uh, human images and technology. They now have a very sophisticated website, which um, speaks to the world in half a dozen languages. They issue very frequent proclamations, which uh, respond very quickly to NATO and, and American military declarations. And very importantly, they've they've positioned themselves as spokesmen for the Afghan nation, um, not just for Islam writ large, but for the Afghan nation. They try to do this in a way that is multi-ethnic in a sense, that it, it is meant to bridge divisions between Pashtuns and non-Pashtuns. And that, that's where I think some of the rhetoric uh, runs into some tension because not all Afghans accept that point of view, of course, and they, and they continue to see them as a, essentially as a Pashtun ethnic movement. So when one talks to Hazaras and Tajiks and other non-Pashtuns, there is um, extreme reticence about um, opening up a political space for the Taliban to return to some kind of um, political authority. And yet the Taliban persists, arguing again that we are, in a sense, the defenders of the nation, that the other peoples have, have um, and other groups have compromised themselves, but we alone stand with our critique of the American occupation and of the, the, their so-called puppets um, sitting in Kabul. In many ways, also, the Islamist platform, you could say, is a, um, uh, a way to appeal across all of these different uh, ethnic and regional ties. 
Um, so, in, a, in, a, in the context of, you know, the wake of the Soviet invasion, followed by an all-out civil war with uh, various warlords from across the, the, the nation-state fighting against each other, the Taliban positioned themselves, and now they're, they're, they're doing a, a, an even better job of doing so, but positioning themselves as um, uh, the all-Afghan solution, not just benefiting the Pashtun or the Uzbeks or the Tatars. I think that's a great wrap-up, and we're able to kind of bring ourselves from the 11th century all the way to present in some ways. Um, so we'd like to say thank you to our guests today, Alam Payand of The Ohio State University, Scott Levi, also from Ohio State, and Robert Cruz of Stanford. We really appreciate your time today joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Pacciandi and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.